all the reasons that the biz found why the Bank of Amsterdam failed. I look at the current Fed and I'm like, check, check, check. Even the central bankers at Jackson Hole were starting to recognize that like, hey, like we can try to pull these levers, you know, the price of money and the interest rates and you know, our QT and try our best to bring down inflation. But there's simply some things that are outside our control. And so perhaps we have to be kind of humble here, which, uh, you know, historically hasn't been an easy thing for these central bankers to do. All the data is completely out of whack. And, and the Fed's saying, hey, we're data dependent and, you know, we're good. But uh, at the same time, we, we, you know, we can't even see the stars and we're trying to navigate it. But, you know, everything's great. <laughs> they're obsessed with trust right now. I read the transcripts of their speeches and they're just completely ob obsessed with trust. And it's because their credibility has never been lower. Can the Fed ever sort of regain that trust or are they at a point of no return? Before we get started, make sure to like and subscribe and stay tuned to find out how you can win a free Bitcoin mining rig and one year of free hosting, a deal worth over $7,000. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Blockware podcast. This week, we've got on Sam Callahan, lead analyst at Swan and host of the Swan Signal podcast. Sam, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mitch. Happy to be here. For sure. So you've written two articles in the past week, and I want to really dive into these. The first one is titled Accounting for Bitcoin in a World of Rising Oil Prices. And the main idea I got here was that there are economic factors beyond the Fed's control, specifically fiscal spending and then, as the name implies, oil prices. So we can break down these separately. Why don't you talk about fiscal spending and how, you know, you, you put this quote in the article Fiscal and monetary policy need to, quote unquote, row in the same direction. And right now they're not doing that. So can you dive into that a little bit? Yeah. Um, you know, this basically, I wrote this because you have the Federal Reserve hiking interest rates to bring down inflation. But there's actually other causes of inflation that is completely outside their control. And that's actually what they're recognizing themselves. And so that quote is actually from the Bank of International Head of Research, uh, Mr. Shin. And uh, he... At the, at the Jackson Hole conference a couple of weeks ago, you know, he was saying how, you know, usually central bankers shouldn't talk about, you know, fiscal policy. It's kind of taboo, but it's really important that they row in the same direction. And right now they're not. And you have fiscal policy of fiscal deficits that are running expected to be about two trillion. So we're running wartime deficits in times of peace while the Federal Reserve is hiking interest rates to try to bring down inflation. And when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, it just widens that fiscal deficit even more, given the amount of debt in the system. So because we have such a large amount of debt, uh, when, when the interest increases on that debt, it increases the fiscal deficit. And so it kind of worsens the problem that they're trying to solve. And then when the fiscal authorities keep spending, that's inflationary in and of itself. And so you can see how it's kind of this negative feedback loop where the inflation increases as the fiscal authorities spend. Then the Federal Reserve reacts by increasing interest rates. That increases the interest expense for the fiscal authorities, which widens the fiscal deficit even more, which causes inflation to rise, which causes the Federal Reserve to react again. And so this is completely outside their control because they're supposed to be a completely independent organization and they don't tell what the fiscal authorities do. Like, for instance, a couple months ago, Jerome Powell was asked about this under oath and he kind of like was offended that he was asked this question about the fiscal spending. He's like, whoa, 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 we don't, we don't comment on that. We don't comment on that. But you can't deny the fact that it really impacts the inflation picture that they're so intent on trying to solve or trying to bring down towards their 2% target. So, you know, I wrote about that fiscal because it's just even the even the central bankers at Jackson Hole were starting to recognize that like, hey, like we can try to pull these levers, you know, the price of money and the interest rates and you know, our QT and try our best to bring down inflation. But there's simply some things that are outside our control and so perhaps we have to be kind of humble here, which, uh, you know, historically hasn't been an easy thing for these central bankers to do. Yeah, great breakdown. And the thing about the spending, it's like there's so much that ideally you could cut spending, right? But a lot of it is Social Security and Medicare and military spending, things that they're just not going to get rid of. And now when you tack on the interest payments being as high as they are and only going to continue to rise, like like you mentioned, this this problem is just like a negative feedback loop and it's going to continue to get worse. Do you think these two sort of conflicting forces, you've got the Fed hiking rates and then you've got this inflationary spending, 
could we see stagflation in the future? Because we've already sort of seen this idea of the Phillips curve break down, right? As we've had disinflation, the inflation rate lowers, we haven't necessarily seen uh, unemployment rise as they're supposed to sort of be that inverse relationship there. So do you think we could be headed towards a period of stagflation? Yeah, I mean, you could almost, you know, you have the Atlanta GDP now still like kind of ripping right now towards 5%, but you could start to see that start to come down, I believe, because uh, like I said, when the Fed raises interest rates, I mean, there are effects here, but they're just on a lag. And at the same time, you have the fiscal authority spending as well as the rise of, of energy prices, of oil prices, which is also outside the Fed's control. Both are inflationary. And so, but you can have this situation where the Fed is raising interest rates, which increases borrowing costs and impacts bank lending in the economy, which slows economic growth. Um, and so you can have this situation, especially as time goes on and they keep these interest rates higher and where these uh, corporations, households, and the government itself has to start refinancing at these higher interest rates, you could really start to see it become a drag on demand. Um, and thus economic growth. But at the same time, you have these other inflationary factors that are happening um, that are based in the real world, like the, the, the price of oil, right? Uh, that's based on uh, supply and demand dynamics that are outside the Fed's control, as well as the fiscal authorities just continuing to spend. And so you could have this situ- situation where you do see slowing economic growth or maybe a stagnation of economic growth while inflation remains historically high or, or sustained at elevated levels uh, above you know, the Fed's uh, 2% target. So I do see that as a, a possible scenario. Yeah, uh, that, that would definitely be pretty nasty. You mentioned oil, and this is another huge part, part of your article. And it's, you, you put in a chart there, and it shows... The Saudi production of oil is down to 1 million barrels a day, and Russia production of oil is down to 300,000 barrels per day. Meanwhile, oil demand's at an all-time high, higher than it was before COVID, right? So you've just got these two conflicting factors that are going to lead to the price of oil going up. In 2022, we saw the White House drain the Strategic Petroleum Reserve by 50%. Do you think it's, it's possible they would do this again next year, considering it's an election year and they want to sort of get prices the price of oil down so they can, you know, win this battle against inflation? Yeah, you know, I, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is meant for, you know, it's our stockpile of, of crude reserves meant for emergencies. And the Biden administration thought, you know, this was an emergency with the pandemic. And so they drained it uh, substantially, uh, and in part in response to rising gasoline prices to take pressure off households. And, um, Gasoline prices did come down. Whether it was a direct result of that or not is 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 a question. But you know, I I would find it extremely irresponsible for them to drain it further because it's it's at multi-decade lows, the lowest since 1985 already. Um, and I believe they even started to refill it. Now they should have been refilling it when the price of oil was much lower. Uh, that would have been a, a lot smarter uh, economic policy um, and better for our country. But uh, they didn't. Um, and so it would be really surprising to me for them to drain it further. I think it would put us in a really precarious situation, and it, especially if there was like a serious emergency that happened. Um, and so that would put us in a really fragile state, even more so than we already are. Um, but it is an election year. And so uh, if gasoline prices do continue to soar like they have over the last month or two, um, perhaps you know they'll throw long-term thinking aside and and just... Uh, put their election chances, you know, prioritize that over the uh, fragility or, or resiliency of our country. So um, it's definitely a question. You know, what I brought up with the oil situation is just like more global with the with the OPEC plus cuts. You know, basically you just have falling inventory. Let's put it really simply. You have inventory falling to very low levels as well as you have global oil demand hitting pre-pandemic levels at the same time. And when Saudi Arabia and Russia both came out, they were supposed to stop these production cuts in the fall, but now they've extended them out to December. And all that means is less barrels of oil hitting the market than, than expected. And so, you know, it's, it's just supply and demand. And um, when you look at other things like how higher interest rates impact the shale production in the United States, you know, it's not profitable for them to, to, to do that stuff when interest rates are much higher. Uh, you know, you start to look at this long-term picture and you're like, the oil price, in my opinion, is probably going to be elevated and continue to rise in the back half of this year 
which doesn't bode well for the inflation picture again. And there's nothing the central banks can do about it. And so whether Biden, the Biden administration and the White House decide to continue to drain the SPR or not, you know, that's it's kind of impossible to know. But, you know, I would find it kind of highly unlikely. And I and I hope they don't. I hope they don't, because, uh, you know, I believe our country needs to be more resilient there. Yeah, I agree. And it's sort of I feel like the common theme with just government's approach to the economy has been, you know, kick the can down the road. Don't think for the long term. Right. Draining the reserve the first time is exactly that. And then what we've seen over the past few decades with just the expansion of the the national debt, it's sort of the exact same idea. And another point in your article is that the U.S. consumer is in kind of a bad position, contrary to what, you know, the um, just looking at employment numbers might lead you to believe You've got charts in there. Household savings is down 23 months in a row. The personal savings rate is at the same levels as the great financial crisis. And on top of that, we've got student loan payments set to resume in October. And I mean, that could be another sort of political pressure because that's a super hot topic. So how are you thinking about the American consumer right now? Well, I think the consumer surprised people this year. I mean, they remain resilient when the cost of living has, has risen so much for them. And, um, you know, retail sales have remained pretty strong and they've continued to consume. Now, part of that is because of excess savings. So excess savings is just the amount of accumulated savings that households have acquired outside normal conditions. And what does that mean? Well, during the pandemic, basically economic lockdowns, they didn't go out and spend a lot. They were able to save. Those weren't normal conditions. And they also received all those stimulus checks. And so in terms of excess savings, that increased about $2.1 trillion um, throughout the years of the pandemic. And now that has created a huge cushion for these consumers to handle this rising inflation, this rising cost of living. Everything's more expensive, but they have this like big cushion of excess savings. Now, the Federal Reserve, uh, the Bank of San Francisco, they said that those, those excess savings are set to be completely drained this quarter. And so they've continuously been drained for 23 straight months. And excess savings are going to be completely run out soon. We don't know exactly when, but soon. And when you look at the savings rate, just how much people are saving each month, that's down, like you said, that global financial crisis levels. And if you go back, you know, there, that's that's really low historically. I mean, you have to go back to 30 years to find a similar level from the global financial crisis. And so people aren't saving. And it's not really hard to understand why everything's more expensive. Their real wages were uh, negative for, I think, 25 straight months outside the last couple months. They finally broke that streak. But people's wages weren't going as far as inflation raged. And so they didn't have a lot of savings uh, accumulated during that time. And now their excess savings, the big cushion acquired during the pandemic policies, well, that's going to be running out soon. And as you said, you have things like student loan payments coming up. So that's usually, I think the average student loan is about $300. Well, that's $300 that's not going to be bought on other goods and services in the economy. Uh, That's a lot of younger people that are are going to get hit with that. Um, And so these are factors that are kind of converging all at the same time. And it's why there's a recent survey uh, coming out of Bloomberg the other day where uh, I think over half of the respondents of the survey, which is like asset managers and investors, they expect uh, the consumer to start to weaken uh, come late 2023, early 2024. And so, you know, all of these things, the consumer is the most important part of the U.S. economy. It drives the economy. It's not really hard to see why they would come under pressure. And now what they're doing, too, is they're turning to credit cards. Like It's very common. You look at credit card debt is spiking. Um, and on top of that, the, the average interest rate on these credit cards are 28%. That's insane. All right. So like that doesn't create a fragile economy or that doesn't create a strong economy. That creates more fragility in the economy. And so it's going to be really interesting to see kind of the, the state of the consumer over the coming quarter and whether the U.S. Uh, consumer can remain strong in this, uh, this challenging environment. Well, 28%, that, that is insane. I didn't realize that. that. That's just ridiculously high. Can you speak a little bit more to the student loan just sort of debacle that's going on? And you hinted at this. It definitely disproportionately is a problem for the the younger people in the country, right? Gen Z and the millennials. And those also tend to be the most vocal about, about their issues. So can you dive into that a little bit more? Yeah, they're just, you know, I don't know if I have that much more to add in the, last co- in the next couple of weeks. They're all set to resume. Now, what's interesting that I saw was a lot of payments are already be- 
getting uh, repaid, which is a lot of people, there was like a strike where they're, they're not going to repay no matter what. It's not fair. And there was a lot of signatures on this like uh, a petition that went around from, from borrowers. But on the flip side, you have a lot of borrowers that are, you know, believe that their debt should be repaid and that they have a responsibility to do that. And you saw a significant portion of them already being repaid before they had to do it, uh, technically October 1st. Now, there is like a 12-month forbearance in place where it doesn't knock their credit rating if they don't pay back. Uh, it, it doesn't knock their interest. And so the Biden administration is giving like some protections and safety nets for when these things resume if, if uh, payers don't pay right away. Um, and so you could see this kind of get drawn out more. It might not be like as big of a shock to consumption right away because, uh, like I said, there are these safety net programs in place. Um, but you're also seeing them already paid back, too. So, again, it might not be as much of a shock because potentially a lot of these borrowers are already paying back and it's already hitting into their discretionary income now. Um, but we haven't seen that much weakness in the uh, consumption metric. So, um, like I said, it's coming. It's coming October 1st. It's something to be aware of. The market has been aware of it uh, for months now. People have talked about it. So these things may have been priced in as well. Um, but there's no doubt that you know, an average of $300 now not getting sent in the economy, um, it's not going to be positive for consumption. Let's just say that. It's going to existing debt. Yeah, for sure. And one more point before we can sort of shift gears, and this is taking a piece from your second article, which we'll get into, which is manufacturing, right? This is something Dr. Jeff Ross has talked about a lot recently, is that manufacturing is basically already in a recession. PMI is down, manufacturing employment is down, can you speak a little bit about this? Yeah, um, manufacturing has been in contraction for almost a year. Like if you look at new orders, they've been contracting, they've been below 50. Um, but now our economy is mostly services, and that's been strong. That's actually been above 50. It hasn't even been in a contraction despite everything, you know, all these deterioration happening in the economic data. Uh, services have remained strong. And I think it's from all this like pent-up demand and and like revenge spending is what I've heard people call it in terms of people going out. They want to travel. They want to go see concerts. They want to, I think I saw that like uh, Ticketmaster uh, sales are, are breaking records this year. Um, and so, I mean, just look at the Taylor Swift tour. I mean, it's, it's insane yeah. how much money these things are making. People want to go out and, and do things. Um, and so you've seen services still do really, really well, and that's kind of picked the things up. But again, when you look at manufacturing, that's kind of starting to falter. When you look at the labor market, you can look at the unemployment rate, but that's a lagging metric. If you look at other metrics, uh, like initial uh, unemployment claims, when you look at uh, you know average working hours, um, the average pay of new hires, like some of these more leading metrics in the labor market, those are all showing signs of cracking. Um, but again, people have been talking about like the spike in unemployment for a long time now. It, I think I think these things just take a lot more time than a lot of market participants expect and predict. Um, I think these things just take a long time to play out, and so um, that's kind of how I see like you know the weakening economic metrics. I think you can look at some of these more leading indicators and in different parts of the economy, but other parts of the economies like services are still showing strength. So. Um, it's it's kind of like a mixed bag is what I would call it. Gotcha. Yeah, those those ticket prices are outrageous. I've gone to a few college football games already this year, and the prices oh, are just nuts. yeah, way more than what they used to be. People you talked about they're all the stadiums are all packed. You know. Yeah, it's it's facts. Every every game I've been to is no, not an empty seat. You alluded to the, like this idea of lagging indicators versus leading indicators. Do you think? Because the Fed makes policy decisions with lagging indicators, that's another reason as to why they're, you know, there's factors beyond their control, right? And they're not super in charge at the moment. Yeah, I think they're definitely looking at lagging metrics. They're look, looking at the most lagging metrics. Uh, they're looking at CPI and they're looking at uh, the unemployment rate mostly. <laughs> so, so when you're looking at that, you're you're obviously not going to have your you know fingers on the pulse of the market, and your policy is probably going to lag what's actually happening at that present time. Um, I think interest rate policies too, like it just it's going to take a long time because a lot of these corporations and households they locked in rates at low levels and it doesn't matter if the Fed's hiking interest rates for them right now. They don't have to refinance that debt for, you know, years. 
And so if they're sitting on a 30-year fixed mortgage at 3%, it doesn't matter that the Fed's hiking rates and mortgage rates have soared past 7 for them. They, they're like, all right, we're just going to sit tight and uh, have our you know, 3% mortgage and you know, look like superstars right now in our house. We're not going to move. Um, same thing with like corporations. Uh, I saw something that over 50% of the S&P 500 company debt doesn't mature until 2030. So they got a lot of runway and they gorged on cheap debt when yields were low. And so that's why like even the Fed, they're looking at this backward looking data, but also it's just, it's going to take a long time for the interest rates to start kind of impacting um, a lot, a majority of these like households and, and corporations, like the really levered ones or the ones that have to refinance now or soon, you know, they're the ones that are going to get hit, but it's not going to be like the majority. So, um, yeah, I think that's the problem with the Fed. They're trying to uh, manage the something as complex as the global economy, uh, but they are, you know, looking in the rearview mirror, looking at at metrics, and the data itself is just really bad too. Like all the data, like I, I've I've talked about this a few times, but like the data is so bad coming out of these pandemic policies. If you look at any kind of economic data chart, it just looks like this. It goes. Right. There's just it's blown out all kinds of any kind of relationships or averages that they looked at to try to understand the means. And, you know, it's just it's blown everything out and they're trying to look and become data dependent. But even Jerome Powell says, you know, we're we're navigating the stars under cloudy skies. That's what he said. And yeah, that quote was dependent. hilarious. Yeah, but, but the data's bunk. The data has completely been destroyed by trillions and trillions of dollars entering the markets. And, um, you know, economic lockdowns that were completely unprecedented, like all the data is completely out of whack. And, and the Fed saying, hey, we're data dependent and, you know, we're good. But uh, at the same time, we, we, you know, we can't even see the stars and we're trying to navigate it. But, you know, everything's great. Yeah, I, I can't believe Powell said that. It's it's wild. Yeah. A lot of the data is just like CPI in general. Right. It, I heard someone call it CP lie. It's like when you have to drop your quality of goods that you're buying, that new lower quality good gets put into the basket. So like, what is, what even is the inflation rate, inflation rate, right? And then with GDP, it's like, all right, if a TikTok streamer gets a bunch of subscribers because they're pretending to be an NPC, that's productivity. It's, is that actually real productivity? So yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of buffunkery going on with the data. With that, we can sort of shift gears your your second article that you, you wrote, you published it yesterday. We're doing this podcast on Wednesday, the 13th. It's titled 2023 is a ripe environment for central bank failure. And I'm going to start by reading a quote that you put in there. And this was from mm -hmm. it. What's, what was his name? It's that big guy who's in charge of like the international yeah, bank or something. Dustin Carson. He's the uh, general manager of the biz. Yeah. Yeah. This guy, I'll read his quote here. At its core, trust in the currency holds the monetary system together. Like the legal system, this trust is a public good. Maintaining it is critical for the effective functioning of societies. Trust requires sound institutions that can stand the test of time, institutions that ensure the stability of the currency as the economy's key unit of account, store value, and medium of exchange, and that guarantee the safety and integrity of payments. Throughout a history measured not in years but in centuries, independent central banks have emerged as the key institutions that underpin this trust in money alternatives have often ended badly it is for good reason that most countries have established central banks with a clear mandate to serve society as public policy institutions central banks have proven successful in upholding trust while adapting to societal societal and economic change what are your thoughts on that yeah so i thought it was a really extraordinary speech because um it, it they're obsessed with trust right now. Like even uh, all these central bankers, I read the transcripts of their speeches and they're just completely obsessed with trust. And it's because their credibility has never been lower. Uh, after they missed inflation, after now, you know, it's coming back down. They can't really explain it. Um, they've looked like fools the last couple of years and they still can't really explain what's going on. And um, that's why I shared a couple headlines that said like, uh, you know, central bank credibility, you know, the age of fallen heroes, central banks face credibility crisis as losses piled up. That's from Politico. The age of credibility for central banks is over. Inflation blunders have destroyed the trust that's anchored the global financial system. 
you didn't see headlines like that emerge um, until after 2020. And these central banks are still talking like they still have trust. But really, when you look at a recent Gallup poll, um, you know, Americans' trust in the Federal Reserve is at the lowest point in 20 years. Um, and so they've really taken a hit when it comes to the trust. And then when you look at um, another speech that he did, uh, Augustine Carson, it was, it was titled Trust in Public Policies. And I, I want to read this one, too, because it says, um, the trust can be lost if society doubts the central bank's commitment to the objective of maintaining price stability. This is one of the reasons why the recent rise in inflation in virtually every country is cause for concern. And so with the rise of inflation, I don't think they've maintained the trust like he said in the original speech you read. And then the second thing is that he said all alternatives fail or have been proven to fail than central bank money. But I would flip it around and say that all central bank money, fiat, has failed throughout history. Um, and really, gold still exists. Uh, it still works. It still functions. It's still, in a lot of ways, at the center of the monetary system. And you could consider that an alternative. And then in the paper that I really reference, they really looked into the Bank of Amsterdam. And it's so funny because they're talking about how all alternatives fail, but they write research papers about how central bank money have failed. And it's called The Limits of Fiat Currency, The Collapse of the Bank of Amsterdam. And the Bank of Amsterdam basically failed for a variety of reasons. Uh, but one that the, the three things that they found was basically, one, the central bank ran at negative equity. Two, there was deterioration in the economic you know, macro uh, environment, as well as an external shock of sorts, so a war, a uh, natural disaster something like that that required um, kind of them to abandon sound monetary policies. And then the third is that there was an alternative that existed for the citizens to escape the fiat currencies from. Uh, so in the case of Bank of Amsterdam, that was metal coinage. Um, and so when I looked at all the reasons that the biz found why the Bank of Amsterdam failed, I look at the current Fed and I'm like, check, check, check. All the things are in place. Now there's differences between the Bank of Amsterdam and the Federal Reserve today, but it's just very interesting to say, okay, a lot, there's a lot of similarities too in terms of why the Bank of Amsterdam failed and some of the challenges that face the Federal Reserve and all central banks today. Yeah, great analysis there. And it, it is eerily similar how, how similar the Fed is to the Bank of Amsterdam. You put in this chart with the central bank having negative equity and you put in a chart of their, their operating profit and loss. And like you mentioned earlier, after 2020, all the data is just like it barfs, right? So it's basically yeah. flat for 10 years. And now the central bank is just running a massive loss. Can you talk about this? Like how is the fed losing so much money? Mining Bitcoin has never been easier. The streamlined onboarding for the Blockware Marketplace means you can literally start mining Bitcoin with just a few clicks of your mouse. After signing up, enter your name and billing information, agree to the terms of service, add a wallet to receive Bitcoin mining rewards, and that's it. You can now buy a hosted ASIC and start mining Bitcoin completely hassle-free. To celebrate this upgrade to our platform, we're giving away a free Antminer S19 XP and one year of free hosting. To enter for a chance to win, all you have to do is sign up for the Blockware Marketplace, complete the two onboarding steps, and like and retweet our pinned tweet. If you've already signed up, you can still enter the giveaway by completing the two onboarding steps. Get started at marketplace.blockwaresolutions.com. Yeah, so maybe I could, um, maybe we could start with just like a little bit about the Bank of Amsterdam, what happened with that, that might help. Um, you know, the Bank of Amsterdam, it started out as a bank that was fully backed by metal coinage. Um, but then over time, it started running fractional reserve banking. And the reason the biz uh, decided to make this comparison um, to today's central banks is it started to function a lot like a central bank today in that it did open market uh, operations like asset programs like QE and QT to try to manage the money supply to basically hit a exchange rate target. So like an inflation target, just like the Fed's 2%. That's how the Bank of Amsterdam worked. Now, when the Bank of Amsterdam came into trouble was they actually started to have a huge borrower. The biggest borrower at the time was the, the, Dutch, uh, the Dutch Indies Company. Let me, uh, what's it called again, just so I get it right. The Dutch East India Company, yeah. So that was like the biggest company, right? That's one of the first like 
people say it's like the first public company, um, huge company in, in the Netherlands around that time. Now, they became the biggest borrower, but then there was like a pivotal event that happened, which was the, the fourth Anglo-Dutch war, where basically that, that shipping company lost a ton of ships in the war. And suddenly all the loans that the Bank of Amsterdam gave them, they started to become non-performing. Basically, they couldn't pay, pay them back. And so over time, instead of, of kind of reducing those types of loans, they actually doubled down. They started giving this company even more loans that they couldn't pay back. And so as a percentage of their total assets, uh, it became less and less of gold coinage and more and more of just bad loans. And so you look at the Federal Reserve's balance sheet today, and it still has a bunch of those terrible you know, mortgage-backed securities from the global financial crisis sitting on their balance sheet right now. It's just full of these crappy loans. Um, and so similarly, um, the Federal Reserve today when they did all their policies throughout uh, 2020, um, they basically got into a situation where they did massive amounts of QE, right? They did added over $4 trillion in, in a, a few years, and they bought all those loans at super low interest rates. Um, and then inflation surged, and they had to jack up the interest rates. So ironically, the assets on their own balance sheet kind of got hit by that. Um, but at the same time, it it caused the, hurt them on the liability side because the Federal Reserve, you know, the liabilities on their balance sheet consists of commercial bank deposits in the form of bank reserves, but also the reverse repo facility. And the Fed has to pay out those interests. And so when the Fed raised all the interest rates to 5%, suddenly, you know, their bonds that they held, the assets, they pay out interest really low because they bought them all during 2021 with their QE programs. So they're only paying like, you know, zero to 1%. But they have to turn around and pay the reverse repo facility over 5% and these bank reserves over 5%. And so then they start operating at a loss. And so at this point, they're, they've suffered operating loss of over $95 billion since September 2022. And that's the first time in history this has happened for them. They, they usually make a profit and that profit just kind of goes off to the treasury. But now they're operating at a huge loss. And so that over time, each month, eventually the Fed's net equity actually went negative. Like they, that means the liability on its balance sheet exceeds its assets. And if the Fed was like a regular bank, they would be considered completely insolvent right now. And so similar to the Bank of Amsterdam, um, they were sitting on all these bad loans and eventually their entire equity went negative, all right? And so it's just another like similarity. And, but here's where it gets interesting is because the Federal Reserve has these accounting tricks and they can just say, oh, but we're going to mark these losses as quote unquote deferred assets. Okay. And this is just like an accounting trick, literally an accounting trick. And instead of paying out like the profits to the treasury, once the Federal Reserve becomes profitable again, they're just going to be able to pay down their losses whenever that happens. And so they basically get this leeway. So like, hey, we're not profitable right now. You know, we, we, we can't pay the treasury like normally. And once we do become profitable, we're just going to have all these losses pile up and we're going to take the time to pay down our own losses, make ourselves solvent again, and then eventually we'll start paying the treasury again. And so what that means is basically the Federal Reserve gets complete leeway uh, to operate at a loss at the expense of taxpayers because usually they're, they're a profitable organization, then they pay the treasury and that you know helps helps the fiscal situation for all U.S. taxpayers, but now the Fed operates at a loss, and then it gets to have time to kind of pay down its pro, uh, its losses before it goes over and starts paying it again once it becomes profitable again. And so, to me, the Federal Reserve is is insolvent, and they have net equity, negative net equity, just like the Bank of Amsterdam. If it wasn't for these uh, accounting tricks. Um, and that's kind of where there's little differences between the Bank of Amsterdam because the Bank of Amsterdam couldn't really do these things like the Fed can today. So it gets nuanced, but it's, it's basically like the Fed, the Fed's own policies shot themselves in, in the foot. And now they're getting a bunch of leeway to try to, you know, survive until they become profitable again. And it, just one more thing, the, what they mean by that is like eventually when they have to cut interest rates again. Because that's when it, the, the interest rates will become, uh, you know, they won't have to pay as much on their liability sides to, you know, the bank reserves or the reverse repo facility. 
Um, and it'll kind of get into equilibrium a little bit. So the Fed's basically banking on itself, eventually having to come in and, and cut interest rates, which is hilarious. Um, and so that's kind of a summary of that that whole thing. But it's uh, it's fascinating. It's completely fascinating. Yeah, it is. So I guess higher for longer, maybe not, right? Because they're gonna they're gonna need to cut back down at some point. The, another similarity you mentioned was this idea yeah. of external shocks, and we had one in 2020, which was COVID. And what was the external shock with the Bank of Amsterdam? Was it that that war you mentioned with like the shippers and, and like that company getting wrecked? Yeah, so that was the war. Yeah, most uh, most external shocks that required central bank balance sheet expansion in the past were from war. So, you know, World War One, World War II, um, and even before that. So in, in the Bank of Amsterdam's case, it was the uh, uh, Anglo... Anglo War, the fourth Anglo-Saxon War, something. Yeah, I would have to go Dutch Dutch Anglo War. Um, yeah, the fourth Dutch Anglo War. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that was the one that like they lost all the those ships and and they just had to pay for the war and so they had to abandon some policies. Now, what's interesting is after World War II, most of the uh, central bank balance sheet expansions have occurred because of uh, financial instabilities or disasters <laughs> so yeah, it sounds like the price stability like the, they're going for hasn't as it yeah to work the out. instability of the fiat system yeah um except you know for for this last one you could say it was from a, a natural disaster that's kind of what they say and um you could see though like the amount of expansion that happened into 2020 just dwarfs anything that's happened dating back to 1600 in terms of how much expansion happened at the same time. Um, and so this truly, it truly was an unprecedented amount of uh, money printing, you could say, you know, central bank balance sheet expansion. And um, it, when you see it on that chart dating back to 1600, you, it really puts everything in perspective. You're just kind of like, wow, that was, that was crazy. So that's the external shock, um, similar to what happened with the Bank of Amsterdam and the war. Yeah, yeah, this chart is is really fascinating. I'll I'll put it up on the screen for the viewers. At this point, can the Fed ever sort of regain that trust or are they at a point of no return? Taking Bitcoin off the exchange and putting it into self-custody is a big responsibility. And if you're going to do that, which you should, you need to make sure your seed phrase is secure. Simply writing it down on a piece of paper is not the best way to go about it. All sorts of things can go wrong when you do that you're going to want to stamp it into metal. Using one of Stampseed's metal plates, you can ensure that your seed phrase is immune to fire damage, water damage, and just general erosion that happens over time. Head to Stampseed.com and use the code BLOCKWARE15 for 15% off at checkout, and you'll sleep much sounder at night knowing that your Bitcoin seed phrase is stamped securely into a metal plate. Well... I think they're at a point of no return just because they've allowed the debt and the leverage to build up to such a level that it's so unstable now and that we've reached a point of no return. Now, the Fed is temporarily trying to regain that trust right now. I mean, one of my critiques over the Fed was like, oh, they're never going to raise interest rates. They're never going to you know, tighten the belt. They're never going to um, – they're always going to keep interest rates low like they have and try to keep easing policy and – they haven't really done that. They've allowed, you know, some bankruptcies to happen uh, this year. And, and you know, they, they obviously did come in and kind of save the banking uh, system uh, with their with their policies. Um, but, you know, there was the second and third largest bank failures in history. Now, I think it's all temporary, though. This is all just the Fed trying to temporarily regain credibility before they have to do what everyone knows they're going to have to do, which is the same thing given the amount of debt in the system and given the fiscal picture. So I think we're at this period of like temporary uh, Fed restraint and temporarily like the Fed trying to regain credibility as much as they can. They're trying to give themselves as much cushion with the interest rates as they can before eventually they'll have to do uh, what we know they're going to do, which is cut interest rates and start expanding the balance sheet once again. Yeah, and... I guess that's my bullish Bitcoin thesis right there. And this is where we can sort of segue into what the, the industry you and I are both so passionate about, which is Bitcoin. Can you juxtapose this this fiat system that's so based on trust and just debt and, and nothingness, really, versus Bitcoin, which is this trustless monetary system? 
Yeah, I mean, that's what Satoshi said right in the beginning, right? Like the problem with uh, the traditional financial system is the trust that's required and the abuse of that trust. Um, and so I think, I think what, why people are attracted to Bitcoin is that it is a decentralized form of governance that cannot be abused or misused by anybody in power. And you can just trust in the, in the numbers. You can trust in the data. You can trust um, in the programmed monetary policy and that it won't change. And that, that is um, monumental in terms of providing stability that you can build a, a more stable you know, economy on top of. And so right now we're in this extremely unstable you know, debt-based uh, system that has all these boom-bust cycles that really destroys wealth. And so it, it kind of, it's like a move fast and break things type thing because they pump debt into the system to try to get the fast economic growth as possible. Um, but it creates all this fragility and it creates all this leverage in the system. And that kind of manifests itself in these big boom bust cycles. Now with something like Bitcoin where it's more sound monetary policy uh, that can't be abused and you know, you can't inflate it. Um, you might see a little bit slower economic growth, but I think you'll find more um, sustainable economic growth where you can actually uh, build a more stable uh, foundation and, and um, you know, economy on top of. So that's kind of why I'm, I'm bullish on Bitcoin um, kind of helping us transition away from this more unstable monetary system into something more stable. Um, I think that's, that monetary policy, the trustlessness of the monetary policy is critical. That 21 million is the importance of Bitcoin. If, if that ever changed and we ever kind of doubted the, the absolute scarcity of Bitcoin, I think at that point the experiment failed. Yeah, I agree. And I, I definitely agree with your point that like Bitcoin will be a more stable growth, right? Because fiat allows unprofitable businesses which are destroying capital to survive far longer yeah. than they other ever would and then when they get wiped out it's just a bigger wipeout than if they would have gone under very early in their their stage you had lynn alden on your show recently to discuss her new book and a point mm -hmm. she was making is that fiat money was inevitable in the sense that gold couldn't keep up with the speed of information as we entered this technological age right and we got telecommunications trade needed to happen much faster and gold couldn't keep up with that so fiat was inevitable for that reason do you think bitcoin is inevitable if we're sort of following the same logic that as you know technology advances and we go to towards this internet age and a digital economy we're going to want final settlement uh with with an internet native asset yeah you know i i I'm hesitant to say inevitable, but I, I do think Bitcoin, you know, is a superior technology than, than what fiat is today. And I think that um, it combines the sound monetary properties of gold. And it's also superior, you know, payments technology in that, uh, you know, global instant settlement, fully accessible. It's the Internet of money. And I think over time that that will likely, highly likely overtake fiat currencies just because it's a superior technology. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I do. I, I completely believe that Bitcoin is a superior technology. Like what Lynn says, it has closed the gap between transaction speed and settlement speed. And it kind of removes the need of intermediaries because right now you have all these middlemen, all this needless financialization, um, and that all can go away now that we have Bitcoin. And why would I choose a very convoluted, convoluted, expensive way to send value when I can do it in a way that's cheaper, faster, um, and more peer-to-peer? -peer? Like I, I just I, I don't understand why more people um, won't continue to choose that option over the inferior option over time, as just like uh, from a technological lens. Yeah, I agree. Anytime I'm like settling up with my friends i'm like please send me a lightning transaction like i don't want to deal with venmo i don't want to deal with cash up anything intermediary it's like we have this more optimal technology to use not to mention it's absolutely scarce and i don't have to worry about it losing purchasing power over time yeah in yeah any, exactly anything to add and there? I, think, I think bitcoin like well I, I just think bitcoiners forget that too i think we get into the weeds and like how incredible it is to just send 
you know, a lightning transaction to anybody around the world and how quickly it settles. And um, it's just, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. And like, it's how Wences Casares, who was a, you know, they call him patient zero in Silicon Valley when he was orange pilling the whole valley back in like 2010, 2011. That's how he did it. He sat people on a table and he just sent them sats. And no matter how much he talked, that demonstration alone orange pilled a lot of people because they're like, holy cow, that's amazing technology. And I think it's still amazing technology over you know 12 13 years later and uh, we got to remember that yeah 100 percent. in the next few months let's say prior to the 2024 halving there's quite a few potential catalysts on the horizon with the spot etf and then the fasb accounting rule change can you talk a little bit about these and do you think they're they're just fluff or are they actually really major bullish catalysts no i think they're both major bullish uh, catalysts. I think these are the kind of developments that occur in the bear markets that set the foundation for the bull markets. I think, you know, FASB, it's boring. It's like this accounting rule change, but when you actually dig into it and um, it's very, very uh, prohibitive and costly for corporations to put Bitcoin on their balance sheet today. I mean, when you look at, say, Block, Block is one of one of the major companies that decided to, to buy Bitcoin and put it on its balance sheet. They bought over 8,000 and to this day, they've had to have impairment losses of over $140 million. That means that, you know, when they bought the Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin went down in price over time. And then even when it went back up, they have to still market at a much lower price on their balance sheet. And they can't account for any of the price appreciation that's occurred. And so the difference between what their Bitcoin's actually worth versus what they put on their balance sheet is around $140 million right now. And that is costly for them that hurts their earnings which obviously people look at earnings and it's how uh, you know investors decide if they are you know should invest in it or not which hurts their stock price and so it is costly for these companies to do it just given the current accounting rules because you have to make it basically an intangible asset it's just like something like a copyright or a brand and so when it goes down in value you have to kind of assess that um each quarter you have to mark that down, but if it goes back up, you can't. And when you have an asset as volatile as Bitcoin, you can see why that's a problem, like for Block. And so FASB changing that rule to just have it be fair value accounting so you can you know, more accurately reflect the actual market price of the Bitcoin on your balance sheet, just like a stock or bonds, it's going to go a long way into to reducing hurdles for corporations that want to buy Bitcoin. And if we are entering a more inflationary environment, more and more companies who are sitting on massive amounts of cash, like think like the amount of cash Apple's on, it's just insane. Um, they're going to think about hedging. And I think when you have, uh, you know, you don't have these hindrances in place and you have these better rules in place for when they decide to ultimately make that decision, it's going to make it a lot easier for them. So I think that's, it's a big deal. I think it's, it's think it's obviously not bearish uh, <laughs> to have better accounting rules around uh, Bitcoin uh, for these corporations. And then in terms of the, the spot Bitcoin ETF, I mean, I've always thought that there's just going to be different ways to gain exposure to Bitcoin um, and, you know, different strokes for different folks. Uh, you know, I think self-custody is incredibly important. I think it's how you uh, use Bitcoin in a sovereign way. I think it's it's kind of using Bitcoin as it's meant to be used. It's the only way to use Bitcoin or hold Bitcoin without any kind of counterparty risk. Um, but at the same time, not everyone's going to be technical or, or ready to do that right away. And the fact of the matter is, if you have a spot Bitcoin ETF that looks just like any other stock or, or asset in your brokerage portfolio, you can just buy Bitcoin with a click of a button and see no kind of difference between the two. Um, that's probably going to open up a lot of doors for people in terms of like demand for, for Bitcoin. And the difference between spot Bitcoin, obviously, is there's actually demand for the underlying asset. Um, now, I think there is some like centralization risks and there's a lot of risk to owning that ETF that don't exist with owning a real spot Bitcoin. Uh, you know, obviously, you have to trust that the custodian won't mess it up. You have to trust that the fund manager um, won't mess it up. You have to trust that they won't change the fees on you. Like there are fees that don't exist with holding spot Bitcoin ETF. You know, there's all kinds of added uh, risks and, and kind of headaches to, to holding it. But at the same time, there's other like um, 
advantages to holding it. Like in terms of these like pension funds and endowments that have regulatory constraints to holding spot Bitcoin, uh, they're going to love something like a spot Bitcoin ETF uh, that they can just fit into their current regulatory framework and investment mandates. They won't have to worry about that, but they can still get exposure to the underlying price. And if we're right about Bitcoin and the, the price appreciation, it's going to be a good thing if these pension funds have some exposure to it. I mean, uh, I hope they do. I hope, I hope, you know, I hope a spot Bitcoin happens and ETF happens, it gets approved soon. And these pension funds uh, can allocate to it. Uh, that'd be good for for the working. Yeah, that, I was gonna uh, say this could. There'd be a lot American of uh, a lot of angry firefighters and teachers and police officers when they find out. You know, their pension fund is just holding all the bonds, and they didn't get any exposure to Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's bullish. Anyway, that was a long story short. I think a spot Bitcoin ETF is ultimately bullish, as well as the FASB rule change. Um, was there any logic initially to the FASB rule as to why it was? Or was that just sort of like a Band-Aid solution? They didn't understand Bitcoin, so they just did this intangible asset rule. Well, you know, I'm not like a corporate treasurer, you know. I I, I believe it's just because there was no rules. There was no rules. There was no guidelines to how to properly account for this this asset and for whatever reason, that was the safest way for them to go about it. Um, yeah. And, and I don't know, like I'm not like a corporate treasurer, but it seems like for whatever reason, that's what they decided to do. Um, maybe it was the most, you know, within the rules of the law, they, they had to do that because there wasn't any clear rules around it. So now there's just some clear rules around it so that they'll be able to follow them. But like they basically... There was no rules for quote unquote digital assets or Bitcoin. Um, and so they turned to putting it as an intangible asset for whatever reason. Yeah. And that's kind of outside my expertise. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think a lot of the concerns about the centralization of an ETF, yeah, they're they're justified, right? But in the event that like if the fund manager or, you know, whoever's holding the keys to that underlying spot Bitcoin, if they lost it, Bitcoin's become, gonna become more scarce and more valuable. And anytime we've seen someone who fractionally reserves Bitcoin, when they inevitably blow up because they can, it's an audible system that, you know, gets audited every 10 minutes and anybody can withdraw, request a withdrawal at any time, right? When these systems blow up, ultimately, that's good for Bitcoin. And I think over the next few years, it's not going to be overnight, but we're going to see more of these multi-six sort of collaborative custody products get built out. It's not going to happen right away. That's That takes a lot of serious development. But if we're right about Bitcoin as, you know, it's going to become this $10, $100 trillion asset, that's going to be a huge market for building out those, those collaborative custody products. And it'll get there eventually. It just won't happen overnight. And I guess my... Yeah, no, I agree. I got two more questions. And you've been very vocal, vocal about a CBDC and the dangers of it, how it can restrict freedom. Do you think that's more or less likely now yeah. that we're sort of seeing these institutions like BlackRock take a, a favorable approach to Bitcoin? Do you think a CBDC is now less likely to ever try to get implemented? Um, you know, I've always thought like a, like a true CBDC um, is pretty unlikely, at least in the United States. Um, it would require congressional approval and basically would have to rewrite all the laws to allow you know the federal reserve or someone to issue something like a cbdc and now it might come in different form it might be some kind of like private public you know partnership that kind of looks like a cbdc you know has all the surveillance capabilities is programmable and all that um but in terms of like a true cbdc i i think there's been a lot of pushback there's been a lot of pushback from when, when you look at like the public comments for the Federal Reserve's first CBDC paper, they were extraordinarily negative uh, from all the just people, regular people that uh, were concerned about, you know, liberties, their, their liberties getting in surveillance and all that. But also from like the banking industry, you know, talking about how there, it would increase financial stability risks and it would actually cause, uh, you know, the payment system to become more efficient or more inefficient, not more efficient. So... And then also for financial exclusion, like I wrote a whole piece about how CBDCs don't address any of the actual causes of financial exclusion in America, and in fact, worsens all of it. And that's kind of what a lot of these organizations argued for 
in their response to that paper. And so I think there's going to be a ton of pushback um, on so many different levels for a CBDC. Now, I think what could kind of change this if, if, it's, if the system gets so desperate, right? If, if things really start to fall apart in terms of the debt situation, the fiscal situation, and they have to kind of just try to reintroduce, you know, overnight this new system, they'll give like UBI attached to it. You know, I hope that scenario doesn't play out. Um, but if it doesn't, like, I, I do find a hard time believing that a true CBDC, as a lot of people think about it, uh, is coming to the United States. But, you know, I'm I'm willing to change that with, with developments. Like, I'm more concerned about, like, Euro- the Europe um, and some of these, like, mm-hmm. multinational... Um, wholesale cbdc systems like the enbridge project with with china you know that seems a lot lot more likely to me than a true like u.s fed driven cbdc yeah i tend to agree and if that did happen that would be the ultimate orange pilling tool i don't think we covid and all that money printing definitely helps with orange pilling it's what orange pilled me and i think a cbdc would be like the icing on the cake for that so my last question is a lot of people, there's like debate in the Bitcoin community. Is the having actually a bullish catalyst or has the past just been coincidence timing with like debt cycles? So what's your thought on that? Is the having a bullish catalyst? Um, I think, it, I mean, when you look at you, we don't have a lot of data points for it, right? Uh, but each time it has happened, right? The, the price has rallied uh, shortly afterwards. And, you know, is it, causation correlation you know i i'm kind of more in the camp like it's never really made sense to me when people are like oh bitcoin's getting scarcer you know right now but really it's just the issuance that's getting cut in half right and so you still have all the bitcoin that's already been mined on the market that can be bought and sold at any time and it's even becoming less of a uh, impact over time because the block subsidy is getting less and less on the total supply, available supply or circulating supply. And so I, I do think there's a little bit of a coincidence with more like the macro picture around these having events. It's almost incredible. It's like Satoshi knew something, right? <laughs> like that this would happen. Um, and so I think what's more interesting to think about with the having is like its impact on the mining industry. Like I've, 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 t- I've said this in the spaces, like how it kind of cleanses out uh, more inefficient operations and overall, just like how it impacts the economics of the miners uh, on the short term. Um, I think narratives are really powerful in markets. And so even if what I'm saying is like true, that the issuance doesn't matter, it gets cut in half, there's supply. It doesn't matter if most people don't even like think like that. And they're just thinking, oh, my gosh, it's getting scarcer. Like that narrative alone might power this thing up. And uh, narratives are extremely powerful. So some people think it, this one's even going to be front run because more and more people know about the having than the last having. You know, I had to like, kind of explain what the having was. Now it's like already getting talked about in Bloomberg and, and the Wall Street Journal being like the having's coming. You know, yeah. it's, it's like the narrative alone might might kind of make this uh, myth a reality, whatever. Like the, maybe it'll just turn this having cycle into a reality because each time people believe it, it does impact the price. So um, it's it's an endless debate like around Bitcoiners, whether the having drives price or not. Um, we only have a certain amount of data points right now that show that. But I'm just kind of going to wait and see and see what happens. I I, uh, I hope it does. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> that would be great. And, yeah, I mean, the timing um, of it too yeah. with the presidential site, the election years, is just, it's too great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, a, it's a celebration too, right? To me, it's a celebration. Like each having... You know, Bitcoin has survived for another four years, yeah. and um, I think the industry is stronger than ever. I think we have a lot of momentum behind us on the ground, and in terms of the products and the tools and the infrastructure, uh, just the brand and the awareness. Um, each having it's just magnitudes higher on all those metrics, and then the price is there too, obviously. But um, you know, it's a celebration to me. I just I get excited around each having just because Bitcoin has. Uh, survived and even thrived for another four years certainly this will be my first because i didn't get into bitcoin uh until late 2020 so i'm i'm super excited about it definitely gonna gonna celebrate so thank you for coming on sam i appreciate it and where can people find you and your work and learn more about what you're doing with swan 
Yeah, I mean, I'm mostly on Twitter, uh, just like a lot of Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin community. So you can follow me at, at Sam Kalla, S-A-M-C-A-L-L-A-H. Um, I'm the lead analyst at Bit, uh, Swan Bitcoin. So you could find, uh, you know, the podcast I do, which is Swan Signal. Um, it's all on YouTube and just anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, and then I do a lot of writing. So you can find that on the Swan Signal blog. If you just go on the Swan website, swan.com, uh, check out the a lot of resources from a lot of great Bitcoiners and a lot of my stuff's can be found on the blog in terms of the written, like some of the papers we, we talked about today. So uh, go check them out. Let me know what you think. Uh, my DMs are open. So I love, uh, I love talking to people. And thanks for having me on, Mitch.